The following message features Dr. Bruce Ware and was recorded at the third main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries Worship God West 2014 conference. It's entitled Worshiping God the Father. Dr. Ware serves as professor of Christian theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, it is really a, a privilege to be able to be here at this conference and uh, share these wonderful truths uh, with you, things that uh, just mean so much to me, and the privilege I have to share those with other people, it's a delight. And I love your family. Uh, you, you complimented mine. Boy, I love your family. And De- Devin's been in my classes at Southern and is a very good student. There you go. And uh, it's, he's, he's, a, he's a delight. Uh, lead, leads uh, worship at Southern Seminary in our chapel, and that's a, that's a real blessing for all of us. So I feel very close to, to you and to, to Sovereign Grace more generally. I'm very grateful for your, your ministry that has, uh, has reached so many beyond your borders, as it were. I mean, at our church, Clifton Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to tally uh, the, the songs we sing, but I'm guessing a third of them anyway, may, maybe closer to half, I don't know, are Sovereign Grace songs that we sing. And uh, so thank you for the rich ministry that you have had, continue to have, in the lives of so many people beyond your own denomination or your own network, network of churches. So I, I just uh, feel, feel so grateful for my connection to Sovereign Grace, and thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight. Now, we're going to be looking at something tonight that is, at, at one level, stunning, glorious, I mean, some of the most amazing truths that God has told us of himself as he relates to us and as as God is within the Trinity, we're going to be looking at tonight. But they are truths that could be for some in this room difficult to hear because they focus on God's revelation of himself to us as Father. Father. I mean, I know this because Jody and I have counseled uh, people over the years. I can think of one woman in particular uh, who had a horrible upbringing. I mean, it's just as bad as you could let your mind imagine at this moment. Horrible upbringing. Now a Christian. And she found it so difficult to pray to her heavenly Father. She received counsel from other Christians who told her, you know, there are other names of God in the Bible, other ways to think of God. And so why don't you just table Father talk and Father thought and think of God in other ways? Well, by the time she got to me, uh, I, I, I had a very different message to tell her. And my message was, what has to happen is you need to rethink, re- re-understand <clears throat> who God is as Father so that your conception of Father is trained in your mind from how God is to you, not how your hu- human Father was. But don't lose it. It's too precious. It is too beautiful. It is too intimate. It is amazing. That God is to his children, his people, Father. So tonight we're going to look at God as Father and God the Father. You all have notes, by the way. At least I had an outline I I trust uh, you were able to get uh, for tonight. And uh, and it's interesting, as, as Bob gave this topic to me, it became clear as we worked on this together that there really are two senses of the fatherhood of God that we need to talk about And both of these are very important. Both are meaningful biblically, but they are different. And and they're they're not identical concepts. We need to distinguish God as Father, as He is Father of His people, and God the Father, who is one person of the triune Godhead, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So both of these senses need to be understood. God as Father really relates to God, broadly speaking, the one God. There is one God and one only. Not three, but one. And that one God is to his people, Father. 
He is father of his own children. That is the one and only true and living God. The only one who is exclusively God and incomparably God is rightly understood from Scripture as the father of his own people, of his children, of his sons. So God as father is a precious, strengthening, at times chastening truth about who God is to us, his children. And as father to us, he deserves our worship. There is no question about this. But there is another sense in which God, the father, relates to one person of the Trinity specifically. As we see the Trinitarian relationships of the one God, the one God who is three, we see that one particular person of the Godhead is specifically, eternally, uniquely named Father. He is the Father of His eternal Son. And here we see the particularity of the relationships and roles of this person within the Godhead with the other persons who are the Son and the Spirit. God the Father, too, deserves worship. But this has to be seen in the context of who He is in relation to His Son and to the Spirit. So we're going to look at both of these together tonight. God as Father, and you might think, really, this has to do mostly with the one God, the one God who is Father to us as we are his children, and God the Father, the specific person, the one person of the Godhead who is eternally the Father of the eternal Son and how he should be worshipped as God. So let's focus on both of these, taking them one at a time and thinking of them together. Beginning with God as Father, the one God who is Father of his own people. Well, you know, when you look at the Bible, you realize, and I suppose this isn't too surprising once you think about this for a moment, that most of the references to God as Father more broadly, that is the one God who is Father of his people, are found in the Old Testament. Because when you come to the New Testament, the emphasis is much more on the person who is the Father of the Lord Jesus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the Father who is the eternal Father of the eternal Son. When you get more Trinitarian specificity in the New Testament, then Father is designated far more commonly to the one person of the Godhead, God the Father. But in the Old Testament, with its primary emphasis not on Trinitarian relationships, that really isn't clear until Jesus comes, right? It's Jesus who forces the issue of understanding the one God as three. But in the Old Testament, the, the main revelation that God had for his people was that there is one God, one and only one God. And this was an amazing revelation when you realize that the ancient Near Eastern world was filled with, uh, with other religions that believed in a plurality of deities. Israel was the only monotheistic faith in the ancient Near Eastern world. They all believed in a variety of gods except for Israel. Where God made clear to them, I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no one besides me, he declares. So, the one God, the God of Israel, <clears throat> the, 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 the creator of the heavens and the earth, that great, glorious God who is creator, sovereign ruler, is father of his people. It's amazing to see this. So, for example, let me give you just a few verses on this. You have the references on that handout. Let me, let me just read those to you so you can hear for yourself what these say. In Exodus 4.22, in the context where God has assigned Moses the responsibility to go back and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. In that context, God says, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord... Israel is my son, my firstborn. Isn't that amazing? Firstborn son. There is nothing more intimate there, 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 there could be between God and his people than for God to call his people his firstborn son. <coughs> Excuse me. Deuteronomy 1, 31. In the wilderness... 
They saw how the Lord, had, the Lord God had watched over them and carried them. Just as a man carries his son. Thank you. In all the ways in which you have walked until you came to this place. So here is a reference then to God who cares for his people, who watches over them, who leads and guides them. Who is this God who directs them in the wilderness, watches and cares for them? He is the father of them, his own children. Deuteronomy 32.6. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you as his own. So indeed, he, he appeals to them in their disobedience, in their rebellion. Do you not understand that I am to you your father? Obviously, the implication is, if he's father, he ought to be obeyed. If he's father, his will ought to be respected. Do we not know that he is father, he declares in Deuteronomy 32. Isaiah sixty-three sixteen. For you are our father... Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. So indeed, even if others do not see what we now see, you are Father. Isaiah 46, I'm sorry, 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are our potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. So here is Father in the context of the one who makes them, the one who brings them into being. He is Father of them as they are His own making, His own people. Jeremiah 3 verse 4, have you not just now called, called to me, my Father, you are the friend of my youth. So again, Israel addresses God as Father in this passage, indicating they understand that He is for them. He is working on their behalf. He is befriending them, as it were, as father to them. Jeremiah 3.19. Then I said, how would I set you among the sons and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations? And I said, you shall call me my father and not turn away from following you. This is God declaring to his own people, they should call him my father. My goodness, the, the, the tenderness that is in that. I, it is as though God wants them to, to feel the weight of his care and concern, his pledge to care for them, his promise and oath that they will be his people and he will never abandon them. They are his. And so he says, call me my father. <clears throat> uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 9. With weeping they will come and by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim my firstborn. Again, similarly, the emphasis on the care that God has for his people, his guidance of them, his restoring of them. And that is because he is father to them. Malachi 1.6 Huh, it, it, just a, an amazing beginning to this book where he, he calls these disobedient, hard-hearted people to remember that he is their father and therefore they owe him allegiance. A son honors his father. A servant, his master. Then if I am father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts. To, to the priests who despise his name. So we, we see, you know, what you see in this is the fatherliness of God toward his people that is represented both by his care, his love, his commitment, his tenderness, his gentleness with them, his forgiveness of their sin. But Father, who is also to them the one who directs how they should live. And when they do not follow in his ways, he chastens them. He rebukes them for failing to respect him and his ways. He is the tender-hearted, loving, caring father. And he is the disciplinary, uh, commanding father of his children. And both of those are true of him. Malachi 2 verse 10. Do we not all have one father? 
Has not God, have one God created us? Why do you deal treacherously against each other, against his brothers, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? So indeed, the, the comment here is kind of like parents to their children who are fighting each other. Don't you realize we're in the same family? Don't kill each other, kids. You know, this is not how you should behave. And in a similar way, God is appealing to them, you all are my children. You all belong to the same family. I am father of all of you. So shall you not treat one another in ways that show that we are all together under one father? Hebrews 12. Now, here are a couple passages from the New Testament. I looked carefully at all the references to father in the New Testament as they relate to God. And these are the only ones I could detect for sure that referred to the one God who is father of his people. All the other references, so so far as I could tell, in the New Testament related to the single person of the Godhead, God the Father, as opposed to Son and Spirit. But there are a couple of references to God generically, or God broadly speaking, as the Father of His people. Here here is one in in Hebrews 12, a passage that I am sure is very familiar to you. Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 9. It is for discipline that you endure... God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline, and we respected them. Shall we not much more, much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? So here is a a reference again to God as father who because of his love for his children will not allow his children to walk in ways that will bring harm to them and destruction to their lives. His love for them, his children, calls him to bring them back discipline for the sake of their godliness. Discipline to bring them into the paths of life and joy. James 3 verse 9, last reference here. Uh, for, for God as father of his people. Concerning the tongue, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. <clears throat> so, of course, James' main point is the use of the tongue here, but it's interesting that he has in mind Father as the broader category of who God is to us, his people. We bless him, and yet we curse men made in his image, and how wrong that is. But he is to us Father. Now, if you look at these references that that I have, that we've looked at very briefly together, uh, and, and look for themes that are here. Here are ones that I came up with that I think represent the teaching of the Bible in regard to God as Father to his people. Six of them that I, that I suggest to you, no doubt there are others, but I think these six are very important and clear from biblical passages. Worshiping the one God who is father to his children it brings to mind these themes about the, God as father. First of all, the exclusivity and intimacy of this father-child relationship. The exclusivity... There, is, there are no others who are his children than those whom he calls to be his own. The exclusivity and the intimacy, they are his children. He is to them their father. This is a relational term, a relationship that indicates the closeness, the tenderness, the commitment that God has toward us and that we should have toward him. So this father-child relationship is a beautiful one that indicates God's heart of love and care for his own, his his covenant faithfulness to his own people, whereby he calls them his own sons, and we are his children who, who address him as our father. Secondly, the care, the provision, the protection that comes from our father. A number of these passages that we saw uh, indicate this commitment of God to be the one who will provide and care, who who will forgive and restore, uh, who, who will be there for his people. 
because he is father to them. They can be confident of his love, confident of his devotion and and his faithfulness because he is father to them. Third, the ownership and rights that our father and maker has over us. Ah, yes, that's there too. I mean, some of these passages link together the, the, uh, the fatherhood of God to us, his people, and his being maker of us, his people. He constitutes us as his sons by making us his sons, making us his children, making Israel in particular, in many of these Old Testament passages, his own people and his own children. So the fact that God is father of us indicates God's ownership of us. Just like, I mean, we, we, we sense that in our, with our own families. I mean, your kids are your kids, right? I mean, you know, you, you may see a kid running around and, and help with something or the like, but, but ultimately you're not the one responsible for that child. It's their own parents. Well, this, this is the sense in which God wants us to understand he He undertakes the responsibility for us because he makes us to be his own. And therefore, he has rights over us. And we should acknowledge that he is owner of us, his children. Fourth, the honor and respect and obedience that we owe to God as our Father. And that's, that's... Another important aspect of understanding rightly who God is as Father, it's not only the tenderness, the kindness, uh, the, the, the generosity and the care that God has for his people, but it's also God who commands his people to obey, who directs his people the path to walk and they are to walk it, who disciplines his children when they, when they go away from his ways. It, you know, I, I have thought of this many, many times that when you think of human parenting, human fathering, that we would do really well as human fathers to pattern our parenting, our fathering after God the Father, right? Who is father in, in both in the respect of his commitment and his care and his provision, the, 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 the tenderness that he will have toward his own children, his understanding and, and, and his kindness. But then also the sense in which he requires that his people respect him. He requires that they understand he's rightful authority over them, that, that they must obey his word and keep what he says. And both of those have to be in place for father rightly to be understood. They ought to be that way in our homes for human fathers before their children and parents more broadly speaking. Another theme that we see uh, from these texts is the joy and blessing that is assured to the children of this father. We can anticipate that because he is father, he has planned good for his people. He will will take them into paths of of, uh, joy and blessing. He will provide for them in ways that will satisfy them deeply. So the joy and the blessing is assured to them because they are children of this glorious Father. And then finally, isn't it interesting, there is no reference to God as mother. Now there are, in the Bible, there are references that are in similes. Something is like something else, where there are feminine images that are used. I mean, God is referred to in one place as a, as a hen, as like a hen who, who cares for her own chicks. But that doesn't mean God is a chicken. Right? So to say that, say that God is like something is, to, is not to say God is this. God is like a rock. That doesn't mean God is a rock. He's a strong fortress. That doesn't mean he is a strong fortress, right? So we've got to be very careful with biblical similes, the likenesses, that, that there are many, many ways in which God is like things that the biblical authors will point to. But he names himself as father, not mother. And I think the reason for this is because there is an authority that is attached to Father that he wants us to understand. There's also a tenderness, an intimacy, a care and provision and protection. Yes, all all of that is there. But an authority that is attached to Father that he wants us to understand. We are under his authority as Father. And that's a good thing. 
Do you know why? Because that father has absolute authority over everything. And if he cares for you, there is nothing that can prevent his will from being accomplished in your life. It is good that he has authority over you because he has authority over everything and he is the kind of God that he is. So gracious and compassionate, so kind and loving, but so loving he will not let his children tolerate the notion that life can be found anywhere else than in walking in his ways. So indeed, as father, he calls his children to be faithful and obedient to him, knowing that will bring to them life. So indeed, God as father to his children is a marvelous theme. He is worthy of worship as the one God who created us, as the the one God who formed us as his own people and as his own children. And as father to us commits himself to care and provide and protect. Who charges us to live in a way that will bring honor and, 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 uh, 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 and show respect for him in his role over us. So indeed, God as father deserves our worship. Now, let's shift to God the father. And in here we find, of course, many more New Testament references that relate to God the Father, who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and is one person of the Trinity. While there is a clear sense in which the one God, the, the true and living God, the creator of all the, of the heavens and the earth, is, in the fullness of who he is as God, is Father to his children, But there is another sense in which the name Father rightly and exclusively applies only to one member of the Trinity, namely God the Father. The Trinitarian names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are neither ad hoc, nor are they exchangeable or reversible or interchangeable. It is not the case that these three nondescript persons, Trinitarian persons, Flip a coin, you know, or, or draw straws to, to figure out which one's going to be the Father, which one's going to be the Son, which one's going to be the Spirit. And, and maybe after a while, they're trade places, you know. Hey, I'll, I'll be the Father for a while. Why don't you be the Spirit for a while? It does not work this way. It is rather the case that the Father is the eternal Father of the eternal Son. And, and Father and Son have a role in relation to the eternal Spirit that is irreversible, and inviolable. So indeed, we see this identity of the Trinitarian persons in these names, Father, Son, and Spirit. Although the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are equal as each possesses fully the one and undivided divine nature. Now, let me just see if we're clear on that. What what constitutes the equality of Father, Son, and Spirit? Each one, of them, each one of them is divine. Each one of them has a divine nature. But there are not three divine natures. It isn't, they aren't equal in the way that Peter, James, and John are equal. Or if you prefer, Peter, Paul, and Mary. You can use either one of them. That's fine. It's, it's not the same way that those three are equal. Because those, yes, they're three persons. But what's different between Peter, Paul, and Mary and Father, Son, and Spirit? What's different? Peter, Paul, and Mary, or Peter, James, and John, each have their own natures distinct from each other. But Father, Son, and Spirit each possess the identically same divine nature. There is one divine nature that is fully the nature of the Father, fully the nature of the Son, fully the nature of the Spirit. Not three natures, one nature. Not one nature divided into three equal parts. So the Father is one-third God, The Son is one-third God. The Holy Spirit is one-third God. Oh, no. The the Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. One God because there is one nature. What is nature? Well, you might think of the nature of God as the collection of all of the essential attributes of God. The holiness of God. The righteousness and justice of God. The wisdom and knowledge of God. 
uh, the, the goodness and grace and mercy of God, all of the attributes of God constitute the nature of God that is the nature of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. One nature, hence one God. So, Father, Son, and Spirit are equal as each possesses fully the one and undivided divine nature, yet each is also a distinct personal expression of that one undivided divine nature. So each expresses in his own unique way what that nature is like in action, what that nature is like in relationship to the other persons within the Godhead. So what distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit is not the nature that each possesses, because at the level of nature, there is total equality. They possess the identically same nature. What distinguishes Father, Son, and Spirit from each other are the relationships that each has with the other. I mean, think, for example, Father, Son. Isn't that a relational category? The Father is the eternal Father of the Son. The Son is the eternal Son of the Father. So what distinguishes them are the relationships that are true. He's always the Son of the Father. He's always the Father of the Son. And the roles that each carries out that are fitting to the way in which they relate to one another. So the Father acts in a fatherly way. The Son acts in a what? Sonly way. I don't suppose there is such a word, but you get the point. In a, in a way that befits the son. He, he acts in that way. So, what distinguishes father, son, and spirit then are relationships and roles that each has that indicate this is who each is as father, son, spirit. So, questions that, that follow from that then are these. What relationships does the father exhibit in relation to the son and the spirit? What are the Father's particular and distinguishing roles? And how does this affect worship of the Father alone and in relation to the Son and the Spirit? Okay, well, let's think for, together for a moment now about God the Father uh, as the Bible describes Him in relationship to the other persons and in the roles that He carries out. And I think the overarching category that you find as you read passage after passage after passage in the Bible, most of them in the New Testament, but some signaled for us in the Old Testament, is that God the Father, that is that particular person, not God as Father, the one God who is over us, but the one person of the Godhead, God the Father, is supreme among the persons of the Godhead. Now, this is not a supremacy of nature, obviously. We just talked about that. They have an equality of nature. But it's a supremacy of position where he is over all things, including over what the Son and the Spirit do. He is the one in charge, as it were, over everything. <clears throat> Here's your, here are just a few passages to consider. Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9. This, this glorious psalm that ta talks about a future Davidic king, a king who will sit on Zion and reign over all things. Here's what it says in, in verses 7 to 9. I will surely tell you the decree of the Lord. Now, the Lord, we'll find out in a moment here, is the father because he has a son, all right? So this has to be the father. I will tell you the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. So do you see in that that the, the ultimate supremacy is assigned here to the Father. He's the one who gives to the Son the nations to rule over all of them. I mean, right now, the Son is in that position of over all things. But He is in that position. Why? Because the Father has granted it to Him. The Father has given Him this position over all things, as Psalm 2 indicates. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your possession. In Matthew 6, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says to pray this way, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how, how do you put together that kingdom that Jesus says to pray for, 
that his, that kingdom come, that will be done. How do you put that together with the kingdom of Christ? We, 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 we who are Christians have been transferred from the dominion of Satan into the kingdom of his beloved son. What's the relationship of the kingdom of Christ to this kingdom in the Lord's prayer? Well, the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom the Father has designed to be ruled through his Son. So the kingdom of Christ is the kingdom of the Father. As the Father has designed his kingdom, that is the Father's kingdom, to be, exec- uh, to, to be, uh, to ruled, to, to be ruled and to be governed through the agency of his Son. So the son is the one who will bring in the kingdom, who will reign as king over all. But how is the son in that position? Because the father grants it to him. So the father has that highest position. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 28, this is an amazing statement. We read here, when all things are subjected to Christ, then the son himself also will be subjected to to the one who subjected all things to him, that God, I take this as God the Father, may be all in all. So at this moment at the end of history, this has not happened yet, but it's going to happen. What an amazing event this will be when everything is put in subjection to Christ. This is not the case now. Just read the paper. You'll see. It's not the case now that everything is in subjection to Christ. But that day is coming. And when that day comes, when now everything is put in submission to Christ, it's all at his feet, what does the son do at that moment? He submits himself to the father. At that moment of his greatest triumph, he acknowledges it is the father who sent me here, whose will I accomplished, uh, who, who sent the spirit to empower me to, to do all that I did. I honor the father as the world bows to me and honors me. Ephesians 1.3. You know, in fact, th- this text has a special importance to me. This is where I began learning the things that I'm sharing with you Tonight, I will, I will just never forget. This is maybe 15 years ago. I was reading Ephesians 1 and began noticing the pronouns that were there and, and realizing that this isn't about God generically. This is about one or another member of the Trinity. And it just opened up this world to me that I had not seen before. So, so Paul, Paul does not say in Ephesians 1.3 what he might have said, which would have been true to say. He could have said, blessed be God for all the blessings that God has brought to us. True enough, but not precise enough, evidently, right? True enough, but not precise enough. So what does he say instead? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so you realize, oh, this, the, ultimate, the ultimate giver of every good and perfect gift, as James 1.17 says, is the Father. He's the one. So everything, every good thing that we receive in this life and in the life to come is designed by the Father and secured for us through the work of the Son. It's an amazing thing to behold that. So indeed, the Father has this highest position as Paul prays this prayer. And of course, he goes on in Ephesians 1 then to talk about a number of these blessings that God has brought to us. The first one in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And I I remember for years and years as a Christian, I just thought of those as teaching God has elected us. God has predestined us to adoption. But it it is not God generically. It is the Father specifically. It is, yes, so you can talk about divine election. That's, That's true. But in Ephesians 1, 4, it's very clear. He chose us. In Christ, before the foundation of the world. It's the Father who did that. He pre- in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. The intimacy of that. That the Father chooses us to be his own children through his own son. Amazing. 
to see that, to, to behold the love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are through the work of his, shall we call, call him his natural son as opposed to his, do, his adopted sons and daughters? Indeed, through Jesus, his only son, his only true son, his eternal son, he brings us into relationship with him forever and ever. So indeed, it is a father who designs that. Another passage that is just so clear on this is Philippians chapter 2. That is the ultimate position the father has. Do you remember this passage in verses 6 to 8 described the incarnation of Christ taking on our humanity. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of, of, of human nature and, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then, therefore, God, who do you suppose God would be here? It's got to be the Father, right? Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name. Do you hear the ultimacy the Father has in that? That at the name of Jesus, now this is interesting, even though the Father has that ultimacy, who do they bow to? That at the name of Jesus, every knee might bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, period, right? Wrong. To the glory of God the Father. This passage, I think of all the passages in the New Testament, is a paradigmatic passage. It is a framework text for comprehending how the Father should be worshipped. I'll come back to this in a moment. But it has to be through the agency of the Son that the Father receives ultimate glory and honor as the Son is worshipped, the Son who accomplished all the work of the Father. Who, who carried out everything the Father gave him to do. Who, who, who is the focus of our worship, which then redounds to the glory of the Father. So again, you see there the ultimate place that the Father has. Now, these other categories really just kind of fill this out. The first one, that he is supreme among the persons of the Godhead, then is also seen, for example, capital letter B, the next point, that he, the Father... God the Father is the grand architect, the wise designer of everything in creation and redemption and consummation. That is, all of human history is, is the product of the Father's will and design. He's the grand architect of everything that takes place. So, for example, look with me at Ephesians 1 verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed. I'm stopping right there. Do you hear all those pronouns? He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed. Who's the he? Him, his. Ah, listen to the next phrase. You'll get it at the end of verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind, kind intention, which he purposed in him. Who's the in him? In Christ. So now you go back and read verse 9 again and you realize this is not God generically. This is the Father specifically. He, the Father, made known to us the mystery of His, the Father's will, according to His, the Father's kind intention, which He, the Father, purposed in Him, the Son. So do you see it, my friends? This is very clear. It is the Father's design, the Father's purpose, the Father's plan, the Father's intention that all things be summed up in Christ as he goes on to explain in the verses that follow. That this, this was, I think, the, the mega purpose that the Father had in all of creation is really articulated in these verses to put his Son in the highest place above all. This, this was the goal that the Father had from the very beginning, to see the Son both as Savior of the elect and Judge of the non-elect that would take place at the end of history. For indeed, this is exactly what will take place. The Son is elevated in both respects as the one who, who is a Savior and raises up in the end all of those who the Father gives to him and who stands as appointed judge, Psalm 2, 
Ask of me, I'll give you the nations as your inheritance. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. The judgment that he will bring on the nations of the world who are outside of him. Fulfilling the design of the Father. And then, capital letter C, the next point. God the Father is the giver of every good and perfect gift. There's no gift that we receive in this life or in the life to come that is not the gift of the Father to us. So James 1.17, of course, makes that point. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from the Father of lights. And Romans 8, 31 and 32 also make this so clear. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Now, again, who is God here? I mean, once you begin to see these things in the Bible, the Trinitarian specificity, all of a sudden, you, you, you'll, you'll begin seeing things you had just passed over before. Who, who, is, uh, who is against us? If God is for us, who, well, who is this God here? Keep reading. You'll see. He who did not spare his own son. Ah, so now we know, don't we? This is the Father that he's speaking of. So what shall we say to these things? If the Father is for us. Who is against us? <clears throat> he, the Father who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? What an amazing thing to realize. The Father has designed everything for us. Really, Ephesians 1.3 could be added to this as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So indeed, everything that we receive uh, that, that is good, every good thing comes from the Father who designed us to have them through the work of his Son. And then interestingly, the, the, the last point here is, uh, I, I put here because it is, I, I think many people struggle with how there could be a love relationship between the Father and the Son if the Father is the one who is over all things and the Son is always carrying out the will of the Father. The Son is the Son of the Father. The Father is the Father of the Son. And at least in our culture, we have this kind of intuition that unless there is complete mutuality, you know, a complete egalitarian structure, there could not be genuine love. But indeed, there is genuine love that not only is not contradicted by the authority structure within the Trinity, but rather that authority structure actually facilitates the love of the Son for the Father and the love of the Father for the Son. It actually facilitates it. So look with me at a couple verses <clears throat> that help us see this. Uh, I don't have them on here, do I? Uh, John, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus says this in relation to his, his relationship with the Father. Verse 31, he says, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. That the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So indeed, he's expressing here that his love for the Father is demonstrated How? In his obedience to the Father. It is that structure of the Father's authority, <clears throat> the Son's obedience to the Father, that is the very mechanism by which the Son declares and shows and demonstrates his love that he has for the Father. So it is, it is a glorious thing to see the Father is the one who is in the highest position, and yet the Son loves the Father, and all things are done by the Father, through the Son and the Spirit. He is, they, they are the agents, as it were, of the Father's work by which the Father accomplishes what he does. Now notice also, the Son in relation to the Father, I'll just go over this uh, quickly with you so we can talk more about worship here at the end. But the Son, you might expect this to be the case then. If the Father has the highest position in the Trinity, the Son then is under the authority of the Father. He submits to the Father in eternity past, in the incarnation, and in eternity future. <clears throat> all three of these are seen in Scripture. <clears throat> so in eternity past, first of all, notice in John's Gospel, 
how it declares over 40 times that Jesus is sent by the Father. That sending, the Father sending the Son into the world is an indication that the Father has authority over the Son and the Son comes to do what the Father has sent him to do. So, so familiar, John three sixteen and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So again, who is the God who gives? It's got to be the Father, right? The Father gives His Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So again, the Father sends the Son. The Son does what the Father commands Him to do. John six thirty eight, Jesus says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Now, I find that to be an amazing statement because he didn't have to include that middle phrase, not to do my own will. He could have merely said, I came down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. But so we wouldn't miss it. It's his will that I'm doing. He adds that middle phrase. I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Wow. He, go, he bends over backwards to make the point. This is his design. This is his purpose. I am fulfilling exactly what he sent me to do. Now, don't think for one minute that means that the son comes begrudgingly or, or that the son in some way is not in sync with his father. Of course he is. His desire and longing is to do exactly what the father sends him to do. There is complete correspondence and harmony between father and son in this. But nonetheless, the decision to, for the son to come is the decision that originates with the father specifically. Even clearer is John eight forty two. Where Jesus says, I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. I have not even come on my own initiative, but he, the Father, sent me. So indeed, <clears throat> the Son does have a role under the Father in eternity past as the one whom the Father sends into the world. Another illustration of this, of course, is creation, how creation takes place. You know, back in Genesis 1, we know that, the, that God created. That's what we're told. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When you come to the New Testament, it gets a little bit more refined. So we realize the God who creates is the Father who creates through His Word, right? Well, you, you know, and really, John 1 is reflecting back on Genesis 1. We know that for sure because how does John 1, 1 begin? In the beginning, how does Genesis 1-1 begin? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Well, you think back to Genesis 1, how did creation take place quite literally? What did God do to create? Then God said... Then God said, then God said. So indeed, it is the word of God that brings about creation. And John makes that clear that that word is the son. The son then who becomes incarnate in, in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 14. Or <clears throat> here's another statement of in Hebrews 1. God spoke to the prophets in many portions, in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, uh, who, whom he... Uh, uh, let's see, he's spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he, the father, made the world. So the father makes the world, but how does he make the world? Through the son. The son that is the agent of the father in creation and the agent of the father in redemption. Very clear. So the son submits to the Father in eternity past, but he also submits to the Father in his incarnation and earthly mission. So you hear Jesus say in John 8, verses 28 and 29, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And those statements, I would suggest to you, are not hyperbolic. When he says, I always do what is pleasing to him, this is not an exaggeration. This is literal truth. 
When, when he says, I do nothing on my own initiative. I do what the Father tells me. This is not exaggerated language. This is literal truth. He always does the will of the Father. You want to live like Jesus? Think about it. Think hard about it. This is what it means to live like Jesus. You always do the will of another, not your own. This is how Jesus lived the entirety of his life. And and by the way, this is the passage three verses later. after, After what I just read you here is where Jesus instructs them on how to be free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So here is Jesus instructing on freedom who's just described himself as never doing anything on his own initiative. As always pleasing another. Huh. It is we who have the misunderstanding of freedom, not Jesus. So freedom is not doing anything you like anytime you want to do it with anyone you choose. Freedom is doing always the will of God because in that is life and joy and liberty indeed. This is how Jesus lived his life. And then the son, of course, submits to the father in eternity future. We saw this already in 1 Corinthians 15. When all things are put in subjection to him, then the son himself puts himself in subjection to the one who subjected all things to him, that the Father may be all in all. Well, the Spirit in relation to the Son and the, the Father and the Son is seen particularly in the sending of the Spirit into the world. So think with me just for a moment about John 14, 26 and 15, 26. These, these are the only two we'll think about here. 14.26 and 15.26. In John 14.26, Jesus says this, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So it's very clear that the Spirit comes to, uh, to, to teach and instruct of what Jesus has said. He, he will bring to your remembrance and help, help you know what I have said. <clears throat> but who is the one who sends the, sends the Spirit into the world? The Spirit who will advance the teaching of Jesus. The Father sends him. But notice the Father sends him in Jesus' name. That is to represent Christ. To, to be the one who will, uh, who will assist the ongoing ministry of Christ in the world. So the Father sends the Spirit in the name of Christ. But now listen to John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Do you hear the different language? 14, 26, whom the Father will send in my name. 15, 26, whom I will send to you from the Father. Well, which one is it? Does the Father send him or does the Son send him? It's both. But do you see the priority? Who is the one who has the higher position of authority in it? It's the Father who does. So I will send the, I'll send the Spirit, but he's from the Father. I only have the Spirit to send because the, Spirit has, because the Father has given the Spirit to me. So I will send the Spirit to you from the Father. And, and the Father will send him in my name. So indeed, Father has highest position in that, uh, in in the sending of the Spirit. Okay, now just a a few comments that relate to worship of the the one God as we think of him in Trinitarian uh, structure as Father, Son, and Spirit. First of all, the Father and worship. At least my, my summary statement would be this, that the Father should be seen as the ultimate recipient of all praise and glory, the ultimate recipient of all praise and glory. Even when the Father is not specified, he has to be the ultimate recipient of all praise and glory. When we honor the Son, we honor the Son who was sent by the Father. But when we glory in the cross of Christ, we glory in the cross that was designed by the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. Garden of Gethsemane. Whose idea was this? For the son to go to the cross. Indeed. So the ultimate recipient then is the father. And I think we see this in a number of passages. You could look at, at, uh, at 
several of these that I have there on the list later. But the one I want to call to attention again is Philippians 2, which I think is so helpful as a paradigm here. We see that the whole world worships Christ. So every knee bows in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the reason that's appropriate is precisely because everything the Son did carried out the design and the will and the purpose of the Father. So the worship of the Son must redound to the glory of the Father, even if the Father is not in view specifically. All worship of the Son properly understood, must redound to the honor and the glory of the Father who sent the Son, whose, whose design was fulfilled through the Son. And, and so indeed, all worship of the Son redounds to the glory of the Father. But then, the Son and worship. Well, the Son then should be understood as the direct object of most of the church's worship. Now, the reason I say most is because there are some passages where the Father is the direct object of worship. I mean, a very clear one is in Revelation 4. Who is worshipped in Revelation 4? Worthy are you because you, you, you created all things. Because of your will, they are, they are created and, and they exist. Who is this one worshipped? Well, that's the Father specifically. But most instances of worship are worship given to the Son so the Son should be seen as the direct object of worship, as well as the direct object of the church's own obedience and, and its own devotion is to Christ. Uh, think, for example, of uh, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Philippians 3, 3, where Paul says, we are the real circumcision or true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't think he means in that verse, on the first and third Sundays of the month, we worship in the Spirit. On the second and fourth, we glory in Christ. You know, let's, eat, let's make sure we do both those. No, to worship in the Spirit is to glory in Christ Jesus. So the, the, the primary focus of the worship of the church is to the Son. I mean, it's one of the things I admire about Sovereign Grace music and Sovereign Grace uh, worship ministry is, is that you've got this right. You know, there, there, is, there is intended to be a focused attention on the Son, on His person and work as, as the primary fuel, as it were, for Christian worship. The direct object of worship is the Son. What role does the, does the Spirit have? You know, the Spirit, to my knowledge, <clears throat> excuse me, to my knowledge is never indicated in the Scripture as a direct object of worship. The Father is in some instances. The Son is often. The Spirit never, to my knowledge. Now, the Spirit does have a role in Trinitarian worship. More on that in just a moment. But clearly, the Spirit has a role in worship as the promoter of the worship of the Son, the empowering agent and indirect object of the church's worship. So again, Philippians 3, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God as he empowers us to glory in Christ Jesus. I take it that's what he means. So that the Spirit comes to assist, to empower our focus upon Christ. I mean, this, this is the work of the Spirit all the way through, isn't it? In John 16, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, He will not speak on His own initiative. What He hears from me, that's what He will speak. He will glorify me. The chief mark, now listen carefully, the chief mark of a Spirit-filled person or a Spirit-filled community is not overt manifestations of spirit per se. The chief mark of a spirit-filled person or spirit-filled community is that person, that community longs to see Christ honored because that's what the spirit has come to do, to see Christ elevated, to see his glory manifest and made known and to see him worshiped. Indeed, this is why the Spirit has come. But there also is in Scripture what might be thought of as Trinitarian worship, where it's appropriate to name all three members of the Trinity. 
I think you see this in the baptism formula. Baptizing, which is an act of worship, in the name. Notice it's singular, by the way. One name, one nature, one God. Who is that one God? Father, Son, Spirit. So baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So indeed, that's an appropriate thing to do. To have Spirit included in the broader Trinitarian context is altogether right. Or one other example of this, I think, is in Revelation 5, where the Lamb who is seen as slain is described uh, by, by John in verse 6 as having seven horns and seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So I take it this is the Holy Spirit. Seven spirits, perfect spirit, Holy Spirit. I think that's what the meaning is. And so he, the, the lamb has the spirit upon him and that lamb with the one who is on the throne are worshipped together. So implicitly it is fully Trinitarian. Father, Son are explicit Spirit is implicit insofar as the Spirit rests upon the Son who is worshipped in that great event at the end. So in conclusion, here's my conclusion. I think this is printed on your handout. Normative Christian worship then is directed in one sense to the one God. Who is Father of us all? It is appropriate to worship the one God. And Trinitarian worship is simply worship of the one God specifying that one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. But with the Trinity in view, in another sense, worship is rightly directed to the Father only because of and through the Son. Remember Jesus' words in John 5, 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's sobering. I mean, you think, can can Muslims worship, can Jews worship God rightly? If they do not honor the Son, they do not honor the Father who sent them. So, normative, regular Christian worship seeks to honor the Father as Christians worship the Son in the power of the Spirit. Ephesians 2.18, Bob mentioned this verse earlier, is just a helpful pattern for us. For through Him, Christ, We both have our access, both as Jew and Gentile, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So indeed, all is through the Son, hence the focus of worship is the Son. The Spirit empowers us to honor the Son, and that redounds to the glory of the Father. What a glorious God. God is as Father to all of us who are His children, and God the Father, Son, and Spirit who are the triune God, worthy of all honor and glory. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much tonight for this opportunity to think through some really significant teachings that help us understand better who you are as God. And we are amazed both that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, but also that you as the one God have chosen to be Father of us. The care and provision and protection, the the guidance and discipline that you give as loving Heavenly Father, we we cherish, we prize, and we we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be children who increasingly are walking in a manner worthy of such an honor to be called the children of God. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you have done through Jesus, your Son, that we might be brought into this relationship with you. We praise you, thank you, and pray you would find our hearts filled with longing to live lives that please you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Dr. Bruce Ware entitled, Worshiping God the Father. It was given at the third main session of Sovereign Grace Ministries' Worship God West 2014 conference. For other messages and more information on Sovereign Grace Ministries, please visit our website at www.sovgracemen.org. That's www.sovgracemin.org.